Hi, welcome to BCI Cattle Chat. I'm Brad White, joined today by Dr. Bob Larson, Dr. Brian Lubbers, and Dr. Justin Wagner. Good morning, guys. Good morning, morning Brad. Morning, Brad. Good morning. Happy to have Justin with us. He's a he's currently a beef extension specialist for Kansas State University. He's got a lot of experience in both the cow-calf side and the feed yard side and has done a lot of work on nutrition. So we're happy to have Justin with us today to share some of the information because we're going to talk a little bit about a listener question about liver abscesses. We're going to talk about an area where, unfortunately, Justin has some experience, which is disaster response, and what are some of the things you'd like to think about on your operation, as well as some of the information that he's collected. He's collected information for the last several years in, in a publication that comes out that's called Focus on Feedlots, which tracks data from feedlots over time. He's got some interesting information there to share over the last 30 years. As always, if you have questions, comments, things you'd like us to talk about on the podcast, you can send us an email at bci at ksu.edu, or you can join us. Most of us will be at Cattlemen's Day, which is put on by the Animal Science here at Kansas State, and that'll be next Friday, March 4th, here in Manhattan, and we'll be there as well, and I know, Justin, you did a great job lining up that program. We'll talk a little bit about that as we go a little bit later on. Before we jump into those topics, guys, I want to ask you, I know all of us, foods, foods are important, and we've talked about food several times, and you have different foods that you grew up with, but then sometimes you have foods that you discovered. So I was in New Orleans recently and tried the gumbo, and I want to know, and it was really good. I want to know what food you didn't grow up with, but you have since discovered that you're like, man, that is great. Well, I've got one. Uh <laughs> this is what most people probably have, have known for for years but uh the the boston butt or whatever the it's a pork roast i think it's a shoulder actually uh, and my wife got some uh some ideas on how to cook it and oh my goodness it was good i i, I grew up eating beef but we've got good friends that are pork producers and so whenever we go to their house they they have pork so i'm i'm branching into a little way, more way to really branch diet. out there Bob. yeah <laughs> you, you're on out. the edge of the culinary tree uh, i am but it was good okay well i'll go the other end of the spectrum and i'll get you something exotic brad so uh we were traveling a few weekends ago and uh found a restaurant and they had alligator sausage tacos so i tried the alligator sausage tacos and it's, I mean, it's sausage, so it's, you, you really can't go wrong, but, but it, it was good. It was, it was interesting and good. Justin, do you have any? I don't know. I guess I must have grown up pretty eclectic. You know, my family had both hogs and, and beef. So uh, <laughs> like Dr. Larson there, we, we, we had a little bit of everything on our palate. So maybe we were a little more worldly, but uh, I don't know. One of the most recent things I think I had that was a little strange for me is, uh, it's a Portuguese sausage called linguiça and uh, just kind of a, you know, glandular kind of concoction, but it, uh, it sounds kind of, kind of gross there, but it was, you're not it making was, it sound very good. It was, <laughs> you know, uh, it was pretty tasty. Um, so that was a little, you know, I was a little skeptical going into it, but it was really good. So <laughs> spicy yeah. and uh, pitcher, you know, kind of like uh pepperoni on steroids so sounds good yeah. all those good. all those things to branch out once in a while is kind of fun and it's kind of fun to try the the local fare at different places and i know we've got 
listeners all around the country, if you want to send us what is your local fair that you think we should try, you can certainly send that in and tell us and we'll we'll send Larson to try it no matter what mm-hmm. it is. So uh, he, we're not we're not going to just take samples. Yeah, I think we should have people send a sample. Yeah, ship them in. (laughs) So, so one of the things that I wanted to get to today, and and we had a question. We're not going to have time to fully cover this, but I, but I want to peek into it a little bit because I think this is a good question. And the question was about information on liver abscesses in cattle. It's certainly something that's talked about a fair bit. We have several researchers here at K State, including Dr. Nagaraja, who has done work on liver abscesses for a long time, as well as several others. But I want to talk a little bit about where do those come from? So Justin, how, how do cattle end up with liver abscesses? You know, so I think that's a great question. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty excited it, you know, it's come up here in the discussion. So, you know, if you think about liver abscesses, for me, I think, you know, very basically, we have some sort of event that, that maybe damages the integrity of the rumen uh, epithelium or the, the rumen wall there. Acidosis would be a common one. And so essentially what that does is that allows any of the bacteria that are within that, in the rumen, that microbial population that, that helps us essentially digest forages that do all those good things for us. Some of those will ultimately end up in the bloodstream. And then the next place those are going to again end up is in the liver. And so that bacteria then is going to set up shop there. And, and then at that point, the immune system responds to that. And so if you think about, you know, as I think about just a very basic, you know, how do we get liver abscesses in cattle? You know, that's, that's kind of the pathway that I think about how those bacteria ultimately end up in the liver. And so you know, there's lots of other great folks on here, so they can, you know, kind of tell you how you, how we treat them and, but it's, it is a significant problem for us in the feed yard industry. And it's, it's one of those areas that I think we're, we're still learning a, a lot more about and, and active ongoing area of research, right? Absolutely. There's a lot of research in that area. And just as you said, a lot of times that, that acidosis or that change in the bacteria, change in the gut wall, the liver's job normally is to take that blood from the gut, gut and filter it. But if there's a lot of bacteria in it, we can get abscesses. So, Bob, what, what kind of problems does that cause for the cattle? Well, it, it can vary. And as you might imagine, like almost anything that has to do with health or disease is some animals are more resistant and resilient um, in that you know, some animals we can discover that they've had uh, liver abscesses at the time of slaughter. And really their, their health and productivity seem to be pretty good. But some animals, particularly if the liver abscess is is larger or addressing more of the liver, those animals can actually have some reduced performance. But then one of the things is that makes that liver um, not useful for human consumption. So that liver is condemned and it is not allowed into the human food chain. And, you know, the liver weighs what 15 pounds or so. And so it's not the same price per pound as a steak, but it has value. And now you've taken a fairly, you know, large dollar uh, useful item uh, in that animal and no longer, uh, useful for human consumption. And, you know, I grew up eating liver. Um, my mom actually cooked pretty good liver, but it's not consumed a lot in the United States. So a lot of those livers are exported to other countries, uh, but they still can't be exported. I mean, they they can't enter human consumption. So that's one of the, the negative attributes of this disease. So, so there's a financial discount a lot of times from the packer, when they have liver abscesses. So, so Brian, what, what kind of therapy do we use here, maybe in broad terms to, how, how do we try to treat or manage these? 
Yeah. So as Justin mentioned, I mean, it is a bacterial infection, right? We, we have bacteria that are leaving the inside of the rumen and that's the kind of the, the first stomach in cows and they, they get into the bloodstream and the first place they go is the liver. And so, you know, our, our mainstay of therapy is to use antibiotics. And that that's one of the reasons that liver abscesses get a lot of attention right now is because it is, it is one of their, one of the consum one of the reasons we use antibiotics in animal agriculture. So, um, but it's also one of the areas, like you said, there's a lot of research going on. And so um, a lot of people looking into, you know, what are the alternatives to that? You know, are there, are there other things that we can do to help manage the disease? And it's, it's a challenge because as Bob said, most of the animals don't show us any signs. It's a disease we find at slaughter. And so um, several challenges there, but lots of, lots of interesting and cool research going on in this area. Well, and I think that'd be a great way to follow up on that topic, Brian, is Let's get, we'll get some of those researchers and get some follow-up on the information of what they're learning, because even though it's been around for a while, we're still learning about it, and lots of things that have been around for a while, we still learn new lessons, and Justin, I mentioned at the top, you, you've had some experience with disaster response on a, on a very uh, first-person level, especially with some of the fires that have happened in Kansas. We had a windstorm in December that was devastating, caused a lot of problems. We've gone through other weather events. And, and I know you and Casey Olson, who's a nutritionist that works here on campus at K-State, wrote an article on how do we respond to some of those disasters? And, and I guess I wanna ask you whether it's tornado, cold weather, whatever it is, if we look at this from the cow-calf perspective, immediately, I can't prepare for all those things, but immediately after it happens, what should, what should I be thinking? What am I gonna go through? Yeah, that's exactly right. I think it's it's very difficult to prepare for any of these disasters, especially just given the, the scope and the magnitude that a lot of times we're dealing with. And, you know, Dr. Olson and I, we were both kind of pretty actively involved in several of the large wildfires in Kansas, the Anderson Creek and the Starbuck fire early on. And then, um, you know, Kansas has been plagued by a variety of, of smaller wildfires. I mean, even myself personally went through one. So, so absolutely, you know, you certainly can't prepare for that, but I, you know, there is some, some lessons to be learned from all of those things in terms of, of how we respond to those things. Right. And, and, you know, I think initially, you know, there's a lot of shock that, that comes through. So that they, these events, from my experience, you know, they, they go through a, a series of phases. And so, you know, the first one, you know, we could call it the initial shock response. There's, you know, we've got a large scale disaster, um, you know, that that's happened. We're kind of coming in and, and trying to do, you know, what's damaged? What do we have left? How do we address, you know, especially in a ranch wildfire scenario, you know, obviously, you know, fences are gone, electrical, you know, electrical poles, uh, you know, electricity can be a challenge and a few of those things. So there's this initial shockwave, you know, kind of coming in and, and doing kind of the damage assessment, if you will. And then after that, you know, that's typically maybe the first 24 to 48 hours. And then after that, we get into this emergency response phase where we're really, you know, we've probably got some disaster response folks that are coming in to help folks out. We've got uh, power utility companies coming in and doing some of that. But then from a livestock perspective, you know, we've got the animals that are left. How do we meet their needs? How do we take care of them? And so we get into this, you know, this third phase, which, which I'd kind of call the maintenance phase is where it's 
really we're just trying we're trying to take care of those animals as well as uh, you know meeting their basic needs and, and making sure that we don't have any you know unintended you know negative outcomes associated with that if, if you will so um, you know some different responses there as we go through you know where we've been and uh, you know it doesn't matter whether it's uh, you know windstorm damage tornado um, even blizzards and and wildfire as well there's a lot of similarities in how we respond to some of these large-scale disasters that producers have to deal with so and I agree with you Justin it's really hard to to plan for that, especially here in Kansas, we see a breadth of these things, right? It could be any possible. So what, what would you, what do you think is kind of the one, the one primary common thing that everybody should at least have thought about or have a plan for uh, that spans a lot of those different disasters? Yeah. So initially, especially with the livestock response uh, in, in most of the scenarios that I've been involved with, one of the biggest challenges for us has been actually simply getting water to livestock. And so, you know, as you look at those basic essential needs, I think that's always something that, you know, as if I were to, to try to help a ranch put together some sort of a disaster plan, which is difficult just for the reasons we've outlined, you know, that's something I would be thinking about. Well, you know, do I have, you know, tank capacity to haul water, um, thinking about some of those things and, and, you know, it is just very hard, but I think, you know, priorities, you know, come back to those basic essential needs for livestock, you know, water is going to be fundamental. The feed's always a little bit more of a question mark in there. So I would kind of come back to, and then the other piece of that is, is always as we're kind of doing those initial part of that response is to, to take an inventory of what resources you have available. You know, a lot of times in a fire scenario, wheat pasture doesn't burn. Um, and what resources are available that can be utilized and are there those opportunities to move livestock to those? And then, you know, evaluating if there's going to be any, you know, unintended consequences of doing that. So I don't know if that directly answers your question, Dr. Lou Bruce, but those, you know, that's what I would be kind of thinking about is basic needs. Yeah, no, I, I think I agree that water, you know, water is the primary one. And then, you know, as you get into phase two, you start talking about feed and then you get into phase three, you talk about long-term health and, and potentially even carcass disposal and euthanasia if it's a certain type of disaster. All, those are all good things to think about. Well, and I think we can't, you can't prepare for every disaster, but as much as you, and we talked a little about biosecurity last week and having a plan and what you want to do. While we can't prepare for every disaster, there are some things we can do to try to get ready for eventualities. And that may be as simple as, what's the list of the emergency numbers that I might need to call? Who might I need to call? And I've got that stuff ready to go so that in the moment, because I think, Justin, one of the things you said, I like how you described it, the first phase is a shockwave, right? And and we're not doing a lot of thinking, we're just reacting at that point. So if I've got any backup plans or backup plans, whether it's relative to water or feed, I may wanna be thinking about that beforehand. A lot of our cow-calf operations, our water may be surface water. And depending on the type of issue that we're dealing with, if it's an ice storm or something that's like a fire, the ash is gonna contaminate that, I may need to have a backup plan to deal with my surface water. That's one of the things you've encountered, correct? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's, um, you know, as you look at like a fire situation, you know, most of the water sources are going to be contaminated. 
Uh, we oftentimes don't realize how much, how reliant we are on the power grid for things. Um, so that's, that's always a challenge as well. And the, the other thing I would share with producers here is, you know, we often think that we, in the event of one of these type of events that we're going to have a little bit of time to prepare, I can tell you that you will not. Um, in our personal fire situation, that fire started about two miles from the house at the highway, and it was through our place in less than 10 minutes after it started at the highway. I mean, it was pushed by 50 mile an hour winds and it was at the house. There wasn't, uh, there really wasn't a whole lot of time to, to gather up much. There was, you know, it, it's, you're going to have 10 or 15 minutes at the most um, from typically when that first phone call comes to you in, in a lot of these scenarios. And that's, that's a surprise, right? I mean, it's just not a lot of time to get things gathered up. That's enough time to hook up the stock trailer and, and gather a few things and get out. Yeah, that's right. And and priority during that phase, keep the keep the people safe and as many animals as you can. But you, you got to make some quick decisions. And I, we're going to put some information in the show notes that, that Justin and Casey have come up with. We'll also put some other links out there that'll be available for you. I did want to touch on, Justin, I'm going to switch this topics because I really want to talk about, you've put together some great information. I mentioned this focus on feedlots. And, and if you want to sign up for that e-newsletter, you can certainly email us. We'll put you in touch with Justin or you can email Justin directly. Um, we'll put his email in the show notes. But tell us what you've learned over the last 30 years of putting together some of those numbers. Yeah, so maybe the, the first place to start would be kind of what the focus on feedlots is. And so it's essentially just a performance and uh, and cost summary of feedlot closeout data from Western Kansas. So there's about five yards that contribute to that data set. And we've been actually collecting this data for a number of years at K-State. It goes back into the late 70s, actually. We've only got the data archived electronically back to about the last 30 years. But if you look at the trends, there's you know, there's clearly some things that jump out um, at me. You know, if we look at the increased exit weights of feedlot animals, we put about 250 pounds of live weight on cattle between 1990 versus 2020. Um, that's a significant shift. You know, if we look at performance trends, we've certainly improved in terms of cattle average daily gain. Cattle are gaining more, more performance out of cattle. Um, obviously, days on feed has is, is also increased a little bit as well. Uh, you know, as you look at you know, this particular audience with several veterinarians on board, you know, our death loss is, is kind of an interesting one. Uh, it's actually a little bit of an upward trend uh, from is what you see in that data, which is, you know, that's that's concerning on, on one hand. But if you also consider and temper that with the increased days on feed and the, the increased live weights there, I think there's some some ways we can kind of explain some of that uh, issue there. But that's certainly one of the things that jumps out with a lot of producers that I work with, you know, we typically think of feed yard death loss on any, you know, given set of cattle is around 1%. I would say looking at our data, it's about one and a half percent. So maybe it's a little higher than what our perceived uh, perception is around death loss with it being a little bit higher. So those are, you know, the kind of the, uh, the 10 minute uh, assessment of what, what have we learned in the focus on feedlots uh, is certainly out there. Uh, those would be a few of the things, um, you know, cost to gain trends and how weather, uh, you can see a lot of influence between weather and, and just in the short time that I've been here in Western Kansas, you know, we, we remember the years we got 30 inches of snowfall in Garden City, Kansas, and you can certainly see that in your, your cost to gain data and, and uh, how feed efficiency changes with some of those responses. So, 
Well, and if we look at it over that period of time, and interesting that you've been collecting since the 70s, and I was going to ask Larson when he started help collecting data, but over that time period, really, feed yards haven't been around that long. It's not like in the 1800s, we had a bunch of feed yards and, and this is going forward. So it's interesting to watch those trends and changes over time. But but Brian and Bob, what do you guys think about Justin's comment on death loss, right? Death loss kind of staying the same. What's your what's your perspective on that? Well, I think there's a number of factors that may be involved. One is, is cattle are on feed a little bit longer, so there's more days at risk. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of questions about, um, you know, our... our uh, are, are we selecting for genetics? Are we, is our management, you know, have, basically there's always trade-offs. So as we improve in some areas, we may, we may have some greater challenges in other areas. It also may be we're keeping better track. So um, I, or as a veterinarian, you could say two things. One, we still have job security or what the heck have we been doing if we haven't shown any improvement? Um, so I'm going to take both of those on is that uh, maybe we haven't addressed health in a global enough way to really decrease the, the risk. But at the same time, um, there's, there's going to be some challenges as, as uh, things, things change about the cattle feeding industry. But there, but there, you, you keep saying, and both of you have said they're on feed longer, more days on feed. That's not just on the back end. Right? It's not the end of the feeding phase. Yes, they're getting bigger. Yes, they're on more feed there. But we also have some younger, potentially lighter calves coming in. And I, and I think that makes a difference with some of the death loss, but certainly very interesting data. And if and again, if you're interested, we'll, we'll put the contact info in the show notes and, and you can sign up for that as well. But I, I did want to talk a little bit about, so Justin, you have been busy and one of your latest busy things is you've got Cattleman's Day lined up and I know you were you were one of the people. So a- annually here at K-State, there's a Cattleman's Day, which is a great chance to come visit with other folks in the industry, as well as they've got some great speakers coming in talking about the weather, uh, transportation, reproductive research and updates. Uh, talking a little bit about some of the meat alternatives and and what are those things. And then, of course, updates from our, our K-State researchers here. But, Justin, I wanted to ask you, what are you most excited about for Cattleman's Day? Yeah, so, as I like, you know, it's it's always a, a challenge when you've got a front row seat at putting these things together. So, you know, I, I'm pretty excited about two of the pieces of the program here. One, you know, Cattleman's Day is really our premier field day for beef cattle in, in the state of Kansas, as I think about it. And so, you know, those research updates, it's been, a you know, with COVID, I feel like there's been this loss of connectivity between just, just folks. We haven't been out in front of people as much and we haven't been to near as many meetings or, and so getting, you know, finding out what our research faculty have been up to in the department and kind of some of the projects, because as you guys well know, those projects didn't stop with COVID. There were some, some things we had to shut down and they got a lot more challenging to do, but we were still actively at work doing things, right? I mean, the research, just like our producers, didn't didn't shut down. So I'm pretty excited about that. And then, uh, you know, this, this uh, topic of what's up with the weather. You know, if you think about the last few years, uh, this is a, Jeff Becerra is at the University of Oklahoma School of Meteorology, and I've been on several programs with, with Dr. Becerra, and he's a, he's a really talented meteorologist, and he's got some interesting data on weather variability. And, you know, 
that maybe we don't want to coin it as climate change, but maybe our climate may be becoming more variable. And I think, you know, the past weather events that we've seen here in Kansas are, are certainly make us feel that way. So it's going to be pretty exciting to, to have him share some of his data that he's put together on weather variability and how that's maybe impacting our, our local weather outlook and some of the things we've experienced here in Kansas recently. I mean, December 15th is going to live with a lot of us for a while. I don't think most of us here have ever seen a day like that. Uh, and I certainly don't want to again. Uh, that was, uh, you know, just unprecedented to have that much of the area country, you know, impacted by winds of that magnitude. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think lots of, lots of good topics there. And, and we've appreciated you joining us, Justin. It's been a, a great chance to visit and catch up with you. And we'll also be at Cattleman's Day. There's a, we've got a booth there. So several of us will be there. I mentioned at the top, Brian will, will be there as well as Bob and I. So we've enjoyed you listening with us. And if you have any questions, thoughts, comments, anything you'd like us to talk about on a future episode, please send us an email at bci at ksu.edu. Mm -hmm.